Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After more than three decades of performing stand-up in comedy clubs, this week's guest recently found out what it's like to tell jokes for cars. This is the end of society. This is the end of the world. You're going to be living in those cars for the next 25 years. And started in March. Don't touch your eyes. Don't rub your face. Don't, you have to wash your hands constantly. Who's that at the uh, CDC? Everybody's mother? You know, folks, not everything's edgy. Sometimes a guy like me... In his later years, he likes to hit like a joke. That joke would have worked on Merv Griffin if they had coronavirus back then. I'm not denying it wasn't the wildest joke you ever heard, but, you know, I like to open soft and work my way up. I, um... Thank you. (laughs) This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I am so excited to be joined on this episode by the ultimate comics comic, Colin Quinn. As we mentioned at the top of the interview, I was actually supposed to talk to Colin last fall around the release of his latest HBO Max special, Colin Quinn and Friends, a parking lot comedy show. But then we had to postpone the taping when he tested positive for COVID-19. Thankfully, Colin is now recovered and already considering how he can turn his experience into new material, if he ever gets the chance to perform real stand-up shows again. Colin and I talked last Wednesday morning, just as Trump supporters were attempting to violently take over the U.S. Capitol, hence all those Civil War jokes near the end. We decided to distract ourselves by, what else, talking about comedy. We went deep on Colin's prolific comedy career, including why he turned down a chance to perform on The Tonight Show early on, how his friend Jerry Seinfeld ended up directing his one-man shows, and his majorly mixed feelings about his time anchoring Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. Let's do it. Here's me with Colin Quinn. So, yeah, how are how's everything going? How are you uh how are you feeling? Fine. I had COVID, you know. I know, I heard. I we were supposed to do this, you know, around when your when your special came out and it got postponed and I heard I got I got word that you that you had COVID. So I was I was worried about you. Thanks. Well, I mean, you know, it's COVID. It's it doesn't completely go away. That's what sucks about it. So it's like it's constantly there's new little headaches and just, you know what I mean? It's you know, I got the antipodes, as we say <laughs> yeah. in ancient Greece. But I, you know, it's still get. You don't feel good. Yeah, no, that's that's tough. I was, yeah, I was, I was thinking about you, especially because I know you had, you know, some medical issues a few years back. You had a, a heart attack, so that's that's kind of scary to to go through that, and then and then this. It was scary because I was afraid I was going to get, uh, you know, you know, I forget what it's called, but yeah, but I'm fine. Yeah, good. Well, I'm glad that you're feeling better. Thanks. But yeah, I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the special which came out, which you know is kind of ironically about you know sort of not getting COVID. Uh, the the goal of the special, <laughs> <laughs> the parking lot comedy show. Um, 
so yeah, you, you you kind of invented the the drive-in comedy show, which was it's a it's a big invention for 2020. That's true. I'm glad you give me credit because uh, you know even though I invented it by tweet, which really doesn't take that much uh, elbow grease. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know it judging from our culture, but I tagged it early. And then my manager was the one to put it together. Yeah, so you sort of had the idea on Twitter, just threw it out there, and then it somehow materialized over the course of the next uh, several months? Yeah, my manager made it materialize. I was trying to be you know, my usual self on Twitter. I have a lot of ideas over the years. I mean, honestly, I shouldn't even say myself on Twitter. Let's say myself on Twitter until like 2015. After that, I'm a shell of my former self. Oh, really? Why? How is that? But because I used to tweet like 20 times a day and all these <laughs> ideas were annoying and I used to get people threatening me all the time. It was just a different world, you know? It was the early days of Twitter. Nobody knew you were being sarcastic. Nobody was in on the joke and I was just getting attacked. It was really kind of great. Yeah, you had this great Twitter Twitter persona, this very sincere kind of uh, deadpan. Um, <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I used to enjoy those a lot, yeah. Um, you you kind of moved, you moved away. Yeah. Did you move away from that because it was confusing too many people or...? No, it was it was just that it was, I ran, you know, I ran, I ran out of uh, platitudes and bromides, <laughs> so it started to get very uh, repetitive, you know. And then, of course, all the followers turn on you, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we remember this is you being ironic." <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they're always good for a little tune-up. Yeah, know? exactly. So, I mean, this has now been—we're now like you know, nearly a year into the, into this pandemic and you haven't performed besides this drive-in show. Have you done any really performing uh, in, in other outdoor shows or on zoom or anything or. No, I did one benefit in a gazebo outdoors and then one zoom thing, you know, but, uh, yeah, nothing really. Yeah. How did, how did it go for you performing, you know, during the, the show that you did the parking lot show performing outside for cars? How did you, how did you feel like it, like it went? Um, it was okay. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it was when you, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, of course you want everything to be significant and, you know, everybody's every line to mean whatever, but it was good. Like the, I like the fact, I like the tone, which was, you know, people that are just, you know, you know, just there to like, they're so happy to see each other, but just trashing each other. I like the tone, but you know, it, it, nothing's ever exactly what you, where you would do it when you look back, at least for me. Well, I'm like, oh no, this just shift, you know, that's life, you know. Yeah. And you directed it too, right? That was something that was, was yeah. important to you that you wanted to, to direct it. Cause you haven't done a ton of directing in your, in your career, right? No, that would be the first thing. <laughs> yeah. So why was it important to you to direct it? Well, because of what you like, you say it's really about editing, like making sure when in the edit you're like, wait a minute, I want this to be like this, you know, like I don't want it to be, you know. You so want I mean, that especially control. with that, yeah, and especially with stuff like that. If I don't know that, then I don't know anything. I mean, I've been around a thousand years. If I don't know backstage banter and comedy <laughs> and stand-up, then I literally have no knowledge of anything. You know? Yeah, I mean that's really what I found so so wonderful about the special was that it's almost fifty percent backstage joking around with the comedians, which is which is something that I always love to see. You know, whether it's you know in any of these um, you know documentaries about comedy or even you know sort of the fictionalized version on a show like uh, Pete Holmes crashing. You know, where you kind of see the back in the comedy cellar and everything. Um, so yeah, I mean, you could really tell that you, that you guys were, were thirsting for that experience, which hasn't been around of being hanging out in the, you know, in the comedy club. Yeah. I feel like that's more important than stand up in a way for comedians. It's like any job. I always say it's literally the same when a group of like retired, like nuns would get together, <laughs> they'd probably be like, thank God somebody who understands what my life 
is and what my life was. Not even retired nuns, just nuns. And then they'd be like, this is what we see every day. And it's just a, it's just like any industry. Teachers, you know, they, they, every day teachers are probably like, talk, when they talk to other teachers, it's a whole different ballgame, you know? Yeah. There's this great line where you, I think you say, you ask the other comics, is, is when you're on stage the only time that you don't feel depressed? And I was wondering if that was something that, that came from, from, is that how you feel? Is that why you were asking that or... or? To me, forget about comedy right now. Depression. I watch a lot of, uh, what's that show? Bar Rescue, right? And I watch Bar Rescue. And every time he goes to a new place, I go, the problem is the owner is depressed and half the staff is in a depression. And so he's talking to them and he's like, why would you not clean your bar? Why would you not do your paperwork? Why are you letting this happen? And I go, they're depressed. So I'm... More and more, I'm thinking depression is the number one unspoken thing that's happening all over the world. Depression, psychologically, not just you know economically. With everyone, not just not just comics, but do you think it is something that you notice more in in comedians? Yeah, because I feel like they're very uh, they're outspoken. I mean, there's something about comedians. To me, the misconceptions about comedians is one of the misconceptions is that they have low self-esteem. I'm not saying we're not, you know, in some ways sabotage, self-sabotaging people. But to get up and speak and say, you should pay me. I don't play an instrument. I don't sing. You're paying me for this. That's not low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is people that are like, I'm too nervous to talk to somebody at a party. Yeah, exactly. It's not that. I'm not saying it's not a sabotage, but I'm just saying that's one of the things that's always bugged me in stand-up. Mm-hmm. I'd like to go on a record. <laughs> <laughs> that people, yeah, because you need you need a certain amount of, of confidence just to get up and do it in the first place. Yeah, and to keep doing it when people are booing you, yeah, that's a certain kind of strength and confidence, I would say. But back to your point about depression, I would say that uh, I would say comedians are depressed in a certain way. Like I never I never wanted to believe that because I was like, that's that cliche, like you know, the archetype and the tortured whatever. So it bugged me, you know. But I would say in general, comedians seem like. De- people. Yeah. Well, you, your set in the parking lot show has a pretty dark outlook. I would say you're kind of saying like, this is the end of the, this is the end of the world. This is it. Is that how you're feeling, you know, about, you know, I guess everything, but in, in particular comedy in the sense of the, are we ever going to get back in comedy clubs? Like what's the future of that? I mean, do you feel like you're, you kind of had your time in the comedy clubs and that's in the past now, or how do you, how are you feeling about it? I do. I do feel like most people, even with vaccines, uh, I feel like most people are going to be a little bit, they're going to question before they say, hey, let's all pack in together and watch and, you know, breathe and laugh. And, you know, what I mean, people, are, you know, it's just there's something there's something about open mouth because <laughs> comedy, you need to be open mouth, you know, and, you know, that's part of why you go is not just to hear, it's to respond. That's going to be a, that airborne entertainment thing. That's a good name for my company, Airborne Entertainment. <laughs> yeah. I don't have a company. Yeah, if you did, that would be a good one, yeah. Airborne Entertainment. But yeah, I would say Airborne Entertainment was going to be a little bit yeah, softer, to put it mildly. You know? And really not the same performing for cars, as much fun as you seem to be having. Yeah, that was fun. I don't like everyone having the power of their horn indiscriminately to use. It makes me nervous. It's like on New Year's Eve, they give out, uh, you know. Yeah, noisemakers. Yeah. Noisemakers, you know. 
if it was every New Year's Eve show, there's always a couple of people you're in the middle of a bit, you got halfway, yeah, bam, yeah. it's like, oh, oh you man, yeah. <laughs> there's a really, there's another moment that I really love in the special where uh, Dan Soder is talking, and he's someone who I had on the this podcast probably just over a year ago when his special came out, and he's someone who's really on the rise, and he's he's coming up, and he's talking about how you know he was just getting to that point where he could go sell tickets and and sell theaters when everything started to shut down. And so I was wondering, you know, how you think about that too, because do you feel like you were lucky to have, you know, as much time in this industry as you did before this, this change happened? Absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, all those, all the people that were just starting to pop a little bit and sell tickets would, uh, yeah, it's worse for them because this was there, you know, it was just that time. It's just a small window, you know, and, you know, if you don't do it, then it's not going to happen. So it's much, it's much harder for them. Well, it's like in general, this thing, you feel worse for people than a 16 years I old know, right me now. Too. That's what like, I think about that all the time. It's like these people who, yeah, are just missing out on everything. Yeah. And they get, now the rest of their life, they're going to be walking with a twitch, like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah, exactly. At the same time, I saw you just tweeted that you, you have, you have a new hour ready. So, uh, is that, sure. is that a, what's your, what are your plans for that hour? And what, what do you, well, I had a new hour ready anyway, to be honest. I had a couple of, I have a couple of hours ready. I mean, I always have a lot <laughs> I always of have a material. Couple hours ready. So I always have a lot of material. I mean, I was working a lot right before this, just working on material. So, so you know, I just do that to, you know, to make myself know that when I go on the road, I have my, I have a, you know, I have to do an hour. It's sort of like, if it does come back, then I know I for, like forcing yourself to book gigs, saying I'm ready to do this. So then instead of just playing around up there, I'm like, okay, now I know I have to have a thematic hour because that's my thing. So, yeah, so that's, so that's, does this, I do, of course, have an hour. Does the new one that, or the next one that you would do have a theme and, and what is it, what is it about? Well, the new, the the theme before Corona was sort of like, it was, it was kind of about, it was like historical again, but it was sort of, I have two, here's my big hour that I've been playing with this whole time is, which I did a little bit. It's called one in every crowd. And I ran that a little bit, but I never shot it or anything. And that's basically about the one person in every office, which all this is irrelevant now in Corona, COVID, but I'm sure even on zoom, the one person in every situation that just is a toxic negative per- that has to ruin things and how if they leave your job or your school or whatever somebody else who wasn't that person emerges and rises up and becomes that person <laughs> yeah. and so it's about that and that part of all of us but it's not excusing them see the thing is you take somebody like carl young right or one of these guys is like they're saying that part of all of us and it's totally true we all have that part in us you see it on social media. How many people do you know that were never particularly aggressive people, but they're ridiculed, they're upset, right? They're just into degrade, whatever. So anyway, so it's obviously in everybody. But this is not to let them off the hook either. The, the people that are this, they're the all-stars. They're all pro. They do it 24-7, 365. Mm-hmm. So my, I have a bunch of theories, but anyway, I have a bunch of material on them. I've been doing, I've been compiling it for like five years of all the little qualities. And we all have some of them. But the people that just managed to do it day in, day out, that's what this is about. Mm-hmm. And from a historical perspective as well, do you talk, get into that from people who are doing it throughout history? Historical perspective, but not any celebrities, not any uh, famous people. It, it becomes too cliche. And you're going to say Hitler, or you're going to say Napoleon, and even Trump. I mean, Trump is so obviously one of this type of personality. <laughs> yeah. Nobody even is 
Well, he's the the ultimate, but, you know, at this point, saying his name is almost played out. You know what I mean? Like, we all know, but it's like, what do you got that's not going to be like, okay, yes, he's an asshole. It's not break. I just like to bring it historical. I'm not saying I'm not saying I can't mention all these people laterally, but if that, like when I started doing the show, I used to bring up Mike Love, who's now in the news. He was in, uh, yeah, at the New Year's party at Mar-a-Lago, I think, right? Right. But I, I did the show years ago, but it was like Mike Love was the guy in the Beach Boys. You know, he was that guy. Yeah, he was that guy. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was doing him, and then enough people came up to me after to go, nobody heard of Mike Love. And I nobody heard of <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus. So then I stopped doing that one. You feel like when you are able to get back on the road, I mean, not that you're not that you do really political humor anyway, but you don't think people are going to want to hear Trump jokes when 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 the I mean, some the people might, but again. I mean, I think we've heard enough. I mean, you know, some people might still be aching for it. Some people are, you know, it's all he's the elephant in the room. But hopefully after this, he'll be, you know, won't be in the room be anymore. like, a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. But um, yeah, but I'm sure some people will still be like, get him. But it's like, oh, fine. You know what I mean, it's a bit of a shooting fish in the barrel, too, you know. But I prefer to do stuff that's that's more uh, that's bigger than just any individual. Yeah. You, know? you said that was the theme before Corona. Did Has this experience of being in quarantine and everything? Have you has, has material come out of that for you? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, because I had to think I was actually glad I had it just because. When you're doing stand-up and then you're like, well, I had corona, and then you can everybody's going to be more interested. I don't have great corona stuff, personal great corona stuff yet, but maybe, you know, in the rearview mirror, I'll be like, I'll have more. But I wish I had had more incidents, you know what I mean? But I mean, what can happen that's that <laughs> yeah. unique with you corona? Don't want but... it to be, you don't have too many incidents. Right, right. <laughs> well, you, you don't want to be on like a you know, ventilator. Get some great ventilator comedy out of it. Yeah, but it would be funny. Yeah, well, that would be really interesting, I think, if you're able to to find uh, comedy in the experience of having it, because I, I don't think I've heard that yet from anyone. Yeah, well, not that many people had them. And guess what? If I find out other comedians are doing quarantine, I want to make sure they had it. I don't want... Uh, That's not fair. Cultural appropriate, medical appropriation. <laughs> medical appropriation, exactly. That's funny. So the historical stuff that you've done throughout your, your comedy, I think is so fascinating and, and just and the sort of the the personification of countries and states has become you know something that you've really uh perfected in a lot of ways i was just actually re-watching um long story short which i realized is having a its 10th anniversary of of when it was released is, is this year um and so i was i was curious to to get your reflections on what what that show was like that was sort of your was that your first um you know sort of big theater show of that scope uh, well, I had done a couple of theater shows. I did a show that was sort of about my family and my block called Irish Wake on Broadway in 1998. And here's how different, here's how quick the world changes. There's no recordings of it. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's too bad. We weren't allowed to record it. Yeah, I've never seen it. The producer tried to sneak in the balcony and record it one night, and the union stopped him. <laughs> that's terrible. Imagine having a show that you ran for a couple of months and it did on Broadway and there's no recording. That's crazy. It's crazy. But so Long Story Show was on my first. I did a couple after that. I did an economic one in 2009, I think. And then I did that one, Long Story Short. But that was my first one that was like, yeah, that was on TV and became a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Jerry Seinfeld was your director on that. He's now he's directed you a couple times now. I don't think he's directed anybody else. So how, what is that relationship like with him as your director? I mean, you know, it's like anything else. You have your clashes. It's not going to be when, whenever two comedians, like I said, it's not a self, it's not a low self-esteem thing to me, the business. So 
when he's going to say, well, I think that's not that funny. You're like, oh, yeah, well, I think it's really funny. You know? <laughs> but I mean, in general, what he always does structurally is pretty amazing. And, and he does it fast. You know, it's like he's he, from being doing his show all those years. He's like a shorthand. He's like, well, what is that? Why are you saying that, though? Well, why wouldn't you? What? And then you're like, okay, damn it, that's a good point. So as far as structure, I mean, he really, he should be directing all the time. He loves editing. He loves directing. Yeah. He should do it all the time. I know, that's he really thing, hasn't you know? done much of it. I was looking at, yeah, it's really just he's done your two shows and that, that's about it. Yeah. But he loves stand-up, too. So he loves jokes. So that's his interest, you know. So he likes to work on that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's kind of it's it's kind of uh, amazing, you know. What are your what are your memories from doing that show specifically? Long story short, what stands out from the from the whole experience? Well, Jerry goes, "You should do one of your one man shows because he saw Irish Wake." And I go, uh, "He goes, if you do it, he goes, I'll produce it." So I go, "All right." So I literally I had this idea to do like the world because I'm always trying to figure out like why is the world have the same? It's it's the opening of Long Story Short, which is how can we keep advancing like. When the internet first came around, Steve Jobs, I remember him being interviewed going, this has the potential to cure world hunger and probably poverty. This is like 1998, whatever it was. And I was like, wow, that's, it makes sense. Because on paper, that makes sense. Yeah, but in reality. And then it didn't do any. It didn't yeah. do any of it. <laughs> yeah, it sounded nice. Yeah, but, it, but I'm saying it had the potential. So we keep doing these technological advances and we still stay, stay in poverty same wars, same, you know, hatred, like human nature. So that's what I was kind of trying to think of with long story short, like trying to figure out if there was a uh, solution or pattern or whatever. And, you know, it just then, but I mean, I can only do it with jokes. I mean, I yeah. can't figure no, it out. I think it's, it's a really brilliant show in the, the way that you, that you weave in personal stories and sort of your own sort of, sort of very small experiences with these huge ideas and huge conflicts. And, you know, thinking about the, um, oh, the, uh, the whole story with America and Iraq fighting outside of the bar is one that, that really stand, right. stood out to me as sort of, it's just the yeah. perfect uh, explanation of that in a way that no one else would, would think to describe it. Uh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of my analogies come down to bar fights, like even <laughs> yeah. in, but it's but it's such a you know common thing, and I used to be a bartender, so it's like so it's like one thing I can say. Otherwise, I'll be like saying, "Hey, it's like a green room," and people are like, "What?" We go outside. We're like, "Come on, Iraq, we're gonna search you." Iraq won't let us search him. The whole world's watching, like fight, you know, half horrified, half excited. You know, Iraq dares us to hit him. We hit him, knock him out. Everybody turns on us. You have to hit him so hard. Look at him, he's fucked up, man. <laughs> Well, like, the guy's got a gun. Relax. Let me just get the gun off him. It's probably in his jacket. Maybe it's in his pants, you know. <laughs> These guys carry shit in their shoes. Remember the shoe ball? Yeah. Did he hand it off to Syria? Somebody get Syria back here right now. I want to talk to Syria. And then the whole world is looking at us like, America, man, what did you do? What did you do? We go, fuck it. He was an asshole anyway. He should have kept his mouth shut. <laughs> So I actually want to go back to sort of the the beginning of your career and just talk about because you know we were talking about the the confidence that it takes to get on stage. So what do you what do you remember about the first time that you got on stage to tell jokes and how did you how did you work up the confidence to do that? My friend actually talked me into it. He said, "I'll do it if you do it." He wasn't a comedian, but he goes, "I'll do it." And um, so he got me to do it because he thought you and were then, funny, or yeah, because I was. Everybody knew I was a comedian. Everybody knows, he knows I peaked. <laughs> I peaked at 15. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, that was it. That was your funniest Everything year. Everything since then. When I was in junior high, I was a, <laughs> I was on fire. But anyway, so years later, so I was too scared to do it. So then I was 23 or 24, whatever. I did it and got that laugh, and I was like, oh my god, this feels good. And then got off stage, and the MC was this guy, Chris Blipman. He goes, "You're a natural. Come back in a year." Wow, come back in and a I go, year. A year. <laughs> yeah. I was like, who's this guy? I'm a natural, but you want me back in a year? What is that? And like I always tell people, you should have said five years. You know? But what are you supposed to do for those five years? You got to practice. You got to, you know, practice somewhere. You got to practice in shitty clubs. Yeah. And so that's what you did. You you started just op- doing open mics. Yeah. And... Every little shit gig, you know, but it didn't matter it was, because when you first start, anybody that does stand up knows you're so high from stand up that it doesn't matter if you're, if you're doing it for two people and one of them laughs, you're like, hi, it's a drug. It's really, stand-up is definitely a drug. It's, it puts people in a narcotic state. I, I've seen it. I've gone, I've had people come up to me when I was like, you know, doing some big gig in Pittsburgh, and a local guy would look at me like, yeah, man, I'd do it too. <laughs> like, you're not better than me. I'm a, because they, because you're not. I'm an addict too, yeah. And that's what's great about it. It makes people, you know, it's a drug state. Um, that makes it even, you know, worse that people, that no one can get up and do it this whole year. Yes. Yeah. Especially for people that didn't do it. I've done it enough where, you know, it's like, if it, if I couldn't do it ever again, I'd, I'd live. You know what I mean? You'd but be for okay. people that are right in the middle of it, it's terrible. Yeah. 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 Um, were there comedians early on when you were doing it who encouraged you, who, you know, sort of, you know, said, gave you good feedback or, or made you feel like it, this was something that you could really do as a career? Everybody. The comedians loved me and the audience hated me. And that was the first, that was like the first three years of my career. Yeah. Comedians and w- are the only reason they, I stayed in the game. Yeah. That, that, that's why they call you a comics comic. Yeah. And in those days it was literal, you know? Yeah. You were getting laughs, laughs from the comedians, but not from the audience. The comedians were so nice to me. They were big. I was a nobody, you know, and they were regulars at these clubs and they were just like, wow. And the crowd was like, no land. I mean, it was so, it was such a weird thing. Why do you think that was? I still don't know to this day. I have no idea. Whatever my frequency was, Jay Moore once said that I was a dog whistle and that only <laughs> comedians could hear me. <laughs> did you have to, is, did you have to kind of turn that around? Was there a, something that you did to get the audience in addition to the comedians? Yeah. I mean, to a degree, you know, but I still, I mean, you gotta, you can't, uh, you know, the worst thing to me is always if you're pandering to anybody, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's the number one thing I personally just don't like in comedy is when somebody's trying to win the crowd over with personality or opinion. And so it's like, I'm like, the jokes have to, you know what I mean? Like, what you think is funny, get it out there. So it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe the audience came around, maybe I came, maybe we both came around a little bit, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't going to going to charm offensive because it just went it just wasn't That's what i thought of thing. comedy was that <laughs> it's not your thing charm offensive yeah i mean i just wasn't like you know i just didn't i i always was bothered by too much uh charm in comedy i feel like there's something about it that bothered me you know yeah i feel like you're, you're a comedian where the, the audience needs to come to you to some degree yeah it's really it's not the it's not the wisest way to work, but it's, you know, it's the way for some people, you know. Um, what about your first time performing stand-up on TV? What what where, what was it, and what do you remember about well, it? Well, but those days, remember, this is like, <laughs> this is like 85, 86. So, like, these shows, even though we're excited to be on them, we knew they were like shit cable shows even then. <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't it's a like, good one. It's my big break. People would be like, what? 
What's that? What about, well, was there one, I guess, that did feel like a big break or that was a big, you know, national, uh, you know, or network no. thing that you did? No. No. Because I never got on Carson or Letterman, you know. Even Carson, I had a shitty attitude. The guy, Jim McCauley, I remember him going to me. He saw me do a set at L.A. at the Improv, and he goes, Johnny would love your set. Just take out the curses, and we'll, I'll bring you in you know, to do a Tonight Show. This is like 1980, 89, 88. And I go... I don't do that. I, I do it the way I do it. And he starts laughing. He goes, yeah, but I'm saying to be on the show, you can't curse on the show. I, go, I understand that. So do your thing. Because I was just in that school of like, hey, man, we don't do the Tonight Show. Fuck that. You know what I mean? Like, that was just my thing. I do was you like, regret that decision? I mean, in the, list, in the list of my regrets of statements that I've made in showbiz, that's way at the bottom. You know, what's that at the was, top? That's small potatoes. What, what's, what's at the top? I mean... There's a hundred, but I mean, uh, you know, telling Mike Myers that I was too busy with my own movies, so I couldn't do Austin Powers. Oh yeah, you, you were know, supposed to do the, uh, the Seth Green character, right? That was your Seth Green. You, you got and, offered um, that. Yeah, like a bunch of those types of things. Right? But I was just like, nah, man. Like, because I never looked at it from the point of view of like, hey, these people, like this is they've been working on this. You're insulting them because if people turn down something I'm doing, I don't care. You know, but. Yeah, I don't care. I'd be like, all right, so they're doing something else. Good, you yeah. know. Or maybe you don't expect but them to say yes. It's insulting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so, you know. But yeah, I mean, you, you, you. Not too many comedians turn down the Tonight Show, so that's that's pretty uh, unique, I think. Yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty uh, arrogant, but you know, I mean, that's part of the whole thing. But it was also, I came out of that time of Richard Pryor and George Carlin. Like those were the guys that we, when I grew up, they were the only ones you could really look to that weren't like old school and the old guys were funny, but they weren't the role models. Yeah. It was Richard the Pryor and George Collins were those guys. Yeah, yeah. Nobody was like, we, we knew like, you know, Bob Hope was funny sometimes, but it wasn't somebody like, I want to be like Bob Hope. You know, it was like those two guys, those are the guys, you know, and to a certain extent that Robert Klein and David Brenner were guys that you would look at and be like, Oh, they're like young, whatever, you know, but I mean, so the Tonight show was not even on my, I thought, it was, I thought it, was like, it was like Vegas. Like when people would go, oh, you get in Vegas. I was like, what, what, what year are you in? 1955? You know, like that was never my goal to be in Las Vegas. So I'm saying that was just my mindset was like, you know, even though I was nobody, I was still like the Tonight Show. That, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not what you want to do. I was doing evening at the Improv at the time. I had no problem with that. That was in L.A. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't yeah. like, you know, it wasn't really an L.A. thing. It was just, I don't know what my problem was, you know. I just wanted to, I don't know. I did see that one of your earliest uh, acting jobs was on the Cosby show, which I was surprised. I don't, I don't remember your appearance on, on that show, but was that a, was that a strange experience to, to go, to go on that show so early in your career? Yeah. I mean, it was strange. And, uh, and, um, you know, I played like a Sam Kinison type comedian on that yeah, show. Just, yeah. I was on the monitor, so I wasn't really on the show, but it's funny because, you know, like, it was annoying Cosby, that kind of comedian, not me personally, but that kind of comedian. Mm-hmm. And I just you were picked playing up kind of a, uh, what the kind of comedian he didn't like. The kind of comedian he didn't like. So at one point, I saw Lisa Bonet was kind of laughing, like she was glad that he was annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> and That's I was funny. like, oh, there's a boy, you know. But that was just a pre-tape. I mean, I didn't even go to the taping of it, you know, because, uh, but, but yeah, and also I'm walking with the script doing the Kinnison guy, and he smacks my script out of my hand. Cosby? Cosby. And, and why, why did he do that? Just say, to say, I get just out think of he was trying to be funny, script? but he was also, <laughs> hates, 
he was trying to say, I hate this kind of comedy. You know, like, yeah. his guys wrote it. I didn't write it, but, you know, I think it was just his statement, you know. Thank you. Thank you, androids. Oh, I'm losing my mind. Hey, engineers, see what I have up here? It's my little toy train set. Who wants to hear it go choo-choo? <laughs> I hate trains. The noise is destroying my brain cells. Okay, Mr. Train, I'd like to say hello to a good friend, Mr. Sledgehammer. Oh, oh, oh. I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. I love it. I was just rewatching as well uh, the documentary Comedian, which you're featured in uh, a lot with that focuses on Jerry Seinfeld. And it was very surreal to see the the end of that movie really is just about this reverence for Bill Cosby and and what he meant to to Jerry as a comedian, which plays very differently than when I first saw that. Uh, oh, documentary. that's so funny. I forgot that they loved. Yeah, a lot of people loved a lot of people loved Bill Cosby's comedy, you know, and I understand why you know what i mean it wasn't my style of comedy you know i get it i mean what he did working clean working you know in some ways he was you know he was very radical in some ways when when you look back on it but but there was something about it that was always i just it wasn't my taste you know it was just like too like here's what i didn't like about it i always felt like he was the good guy and everybody else is the asshole yeah and see how that turned out yeah i don't like that kind of comedy well, you're the good guy, and everybody else is a dick. It's not very self-deprecating. No. It's sort of like, hey, I'm just, you know, good people. It's just something about it bugs me. Yeah. Yeah, well, watching the movie, watching the documentary, it's like, yeah. I, I mean, I was a big fan of him and, and the Cosby show and all that when growing up. But, yeah, you can really only see the, the monster now when you when you look at the footage of him, I think. It's crazy. You know, one time we did uh, a Carnegie Hall sh- We did a Carnegie Hall show after 9-11. So I was with my girlfriend at the time. It was really beautiful, you know. And... um and Cosby wanted to meet me because I said, you know, whatever reason, he wanted to meet me. He's upstairs in the, his own room in Carnegie Hall with a big cigar, dark room in Carnegie Hall by himself. But I said to my girlfriend, you want to come meet Bill Cosby? She goes, yeah. So we come in. He spends 15 minutes talking to me about comedy. He doesn't look at me more than 10 <laughs> seconds. He's just staring at your girlfriend? To where it was a joke. We're like laughing. Like he's, he knows he's doing, he's not, he knows what he's doing, but he still can't stop. Oof. Yeah. It was really weird. And she was like, that was kind of weird. She goes, I don't care, but it was a little weird. Yeah, creepy. Well, yikes. Could have been worse for her. (laughs) Yeah. Coming up, Colin has a revelation about why he sabotaged himself at Saturday Night Live after taking over Weekend Update from his friend, Norm MacDonald. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So I do want to talk a little bit about SNL because that's, you know, where, where I first saw you and I think where, you know, where you're still most known for, for a lot of people. And I'm, as anyone who listens to this show knows, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with Saturday Night Live. Oh, okay, good. So I, I you know, I love old SNL stories. Um, you started, you got hired as a, as a writer on the show, right? I got hired as a writer first. You did. Did you audition to be on the cast and they hired you as a writer or did you, did you just get hired as a writer? No, I got hired as a writer and it was the year the show almost went under. It was the year after that. Saturday Night Dead. Saturday Night Dead. (laughs) Yeah. So nobody was left except for Norm MacDonald. Everybody else and David Spade. Is that when they fired uh, Chris Farley and uh, Adam Sandler and everybody? Yes, the year before that. Which is uh, is crazy that that happened, that that (laughs) thinking about those guys getting fired is kind of insane. I know it is crazy, right? But they left David and Norm because they were relatively new and, you know, so they were. But anyway, everything else was new. Will Ferrell. This is the first year for Will. Adam McKay. Sherry O'Terry. Yeah, Molly Shannon, I think, right? Anna. Everybody, right? So it was a whole new group. So I was a writer, but then I was doing these little update features. They told me, one of the writers goes, put an update feature in. So I started putting these update features in. And then, like, the lion and this guy, Joe Blow, they were like my little yeah. update. I saw thing. one. You, you, you did a St. Patrick's Day one that was pretty memorable. Yeah. <laughs> and people thought I was really drunk, you know? Yeah. And then, so I like doing that Yours stuff. Yours some good acting. Thanks. I should have just stayed with those. But anyway, but those were, so I was writing, but I was really, I had the best job in the show. I would do update features, and that was it. You weren't, were you writing sketches, too, or you really just got to do the update stuff? I wrote some sketches, but not really, not that much. Yet. Not a lot that got on? No, not, not much stuff that got yeah. on. How did you make the transition from being a writer to being part of the cast? My manager just was uh, like, hey, put him in the cast as a featured player. And then they put me in the cast as a featured player. In retrospect, you know, everything's 2020. I'd say I would have just stayed as a writer, done my little update features, and that would have been it. Mm-hmm. And you would have been happier? And why is that? You didn't have a good experience doing, doing uh, anchoring update? I just, well, yeah, it wasn't, for, it wasn't what I should have been doing. And I, my gut knew it, but I didn't know it. And, you know, also, you're never going to turn down. Because I, even at that point, had turned down so many things. I was like, if I say no to these opportunities, what does that mean? You know, like, am I going to kick myself? So a lot of times... <laughs> saying no to The Tonight Show. After saying no, I've said no to the wrong things and yes to the, well, vice versa. I've said the, it's just the way it's been. But that's, I like to think that's what makes me a comedian is that I make the wrong decision a lot of times. And <laughs> yeah. that one makes me like. Makes, makes for funny, yeah. Yeah. That you're not this, you know, we always used to say like actors are like the beautiful people and comedians are the people outside the window peering in with everybody <laughs> else. So in a way, it's it was meant to be, you know. Yeah, I mean, do you think that part of the issue with with Weekend Update was the circumstances of Norm Macdonald's leaving, and that there was any sort of bad feeling there? Until about three years ago, I didn't really understand how much I sabotaged it because of that. You what, know what, what do you mean? mean? Like, like that, that was you. You. I mean, like. I was so afraid. I had never been in a position before where people might think I'm like the good boy. I'm the, 
who comes in when this guy's acting up. So I, every episode, I would not smile. I would just throw away everything. And so really, I would self-destruct, as you can see, if you watch it, <laughs> where I was kind of like just even more so than I normally was because uh, of that. You know how you go to your favorite bar and your local bartender isn't there? You ask, where's Jeff? Jeff no longer works here. I'm Steve. And you're thinking, hey, who's this idiot? I like Jeff but you still want your drink? And even though Steve doesn't mix your drink the same way you're used to, like Jeff, you still like the bar, you don't have to go to a different bar. And even Steve might feel kind of bad because Jeff trained him. <laughs> Jeff showed him how to work the cash register, where the tonic was on the soda gun, who tips, who doesn't. Well, I'm Steve, what can I get you? <laughs> Have you talked to Norm about it in, in more recent years, about what that was like for him? No. I mean, we knew each other very well at that point and afterwards, but we never really discussed details about it. But, you know, I can't picture having that heart-to-heart -heart with Norm, you know what I mean? Like, that's not, you know, that's not that's what not we're... How, but, how you guys are. That's not how we are, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's got people he's like that with, but, you know, I'm not one of them. But we're, we're friends. We... We respect each other and we work together all the time. But yeah, we would never have that discussion. Um, so, I mean, you you overall, it seems like you feel like it was not the best experience being the, the anchor of, of Weekend Update. But are there memories that are there good memories of being on the show that you have that that stick out to you? The first my first half of my time on that show was my dream come true. Second half was not fun for me or for the audience or for Lauren with me. But I mean, um, but the first half was I mean, just, just imagine, I'm from New York. I, I'm taking the, every day, taking the D or the F right below 30 Rock, getting up and walking into 30 Rock and working a Saturday Night Live as a writer and doing my little performance, stand-up things, taking the train after the show, after rehearsal, down to the comedy cellar a couple of times a week, doing stand-up. I mean, you, you know, for what I am or what a lot of people like me are, you couldn't ask for anything better. It's a, it was it was it was a dream. You know, it was an amazing, and it was you know I was only in my thirties, so I didn't expect it. It was amazing. It was great. And then you know, like anything else, be careful what you wish for. What did you like or not like about appearing in sketches, which you would do once you were in the cast? You know, besides Weekend Update, did, was that fun for you? Actually, you know, acting in, in sketches and, and playing characters. No. No, like I said, I wasn't going to turn it down. It was great. But then when I was doing it, I was like, I don't like this at all. I think being a stand-up, you used to work in a certain way, you know, and you want to write your own material and you don't want to do other people's shit. You know, it's all those things. And I had no time to go to the cellar and work on stand-up, which is really so much of a drug, like I said. And it was, the, it was funny. The first half was so amazing. And the second half, it just... You know, but I wouldn't admit it to myself at the time, because how can you admit that this thing is not making you happy when it's the ultimate goal for everybody, you know, or at least for a lot of people. Given your, that you didn't enjoy the second half of your experience there, when you, were you kind of relieved when it was over and, and you, they, they asked you not to come back? Yeah, yeah, I was. And it's a shame, you know what I mean? Because it didn't have to go down like that, you know what I mean? But it did. You know, I just have to look at my part of it, which was a big part, and my attitude of everything, you know. And it's too bad, but, you know, that's the way it went. I mean, SNL, it's such a great thing in some ways. Nobody comes out of there without a little uh, knee injury when it rains, where you're like, ah, you know. Battle scarf. That's right. Yeah. 
I loved the, uh, there's this great moment in the, the SNL 40th anniversary special where it's the, the four, uh, weekend update guys. And I think it's you, Norm, Seth Meyers, and, uh, Chevy Chase or Kevin, and, uh, Nealon, Kevin Nealon and then you in, and then you introduce Chevy Chase is that how it works right right 23 people have anchored the weekend update desk and this fact may surprise you a few of them were men I'd like to bring up that Wally the cue card guy used to drop my cards that's why I mumbled some of the time most of the time all of the time <laughs> You know, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Embellish. I had nothing to complain about while I was here, Norm Macdonald. I mean, I just showed up and I did the work, Hammered. And to be on these stage, stage with these guys, hacks, I mean, it's pretty special. In a way. You know what I'm saying? And it's the, there's something very strange going on in that clip, and I was, I was wondering what your experience of it was. That was my first time back. So that whole night was weird for me, you know. I mean, I had so many emotions, and yeah, that was the first time I even really started to think back over those days, you know? So it was kind of, for me, it was just, that moment was nothing compared to just the whole night. I had never, I had been back in that studio, it was really crazy for me, you know? I mean, I had been in the, the on that floor, because the other TV shows are there, but to be back in the studio and see everybody, it just brings back, I feel like a lot of people had different emotions that, I feel like it was a really emotional night for a lot of people. You know, especially people like me that have not been back for so long, you know. The other thing that I just wanted to bring up or talk about um, is just another project that you did that I love and that you've been now re-releasing over the past year, uh, which is Cop Show, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which uh, is just, it's so good and so funny. And I think it's its probably, you know, it's very, uh, I would say, under underappreciated in some ways. I think there's probably a lot of people who, who haven't seen it or, or don't know about it. So I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to, to seek it out on YouTube. Is it is it something that you have considered uh, bringing back in any way? Or are you? Well, I've tried. I've gone to everybody and pitched it, but nobody wants it, you know? It's terrible because it's so funny, you know? It's like... The tone of it is really specific and, and just, <laughs> it works really well. I don't, I don't... And I mean... The way I could do it it just, and I pitched it this way too. I said, it doesn't just have to be me. You can get other comedian cops and go over the, their conflicts and their histories like of their lives with in the show. So it's like, it doesn't just have to be this one thing. It's got, you know, it's got, it's got a lot of potential. Yeah. The history of comedy and, and the history of all the conflicts that people have. Yeah. And it's so specific to showbiz you know, sort of, uh, conflicts Tropes. and issues and yeah. yeah. And is that something that you really, is that what is funny to you about it and sort of using those, those things? And is, is it based on experiences that you've had or is it just based on sort of your perception of the industry or? Well, yeah, I mean, it's based on, you know, all it's based on a couple of things. One is that cop shows are so sincere and they try to be so like topical and of the moment and how corny it is sometimes, you know, and the fact that I've never been on Law and Order or been asked to be on. And so that was my, you know, that, that was, I used to have a whole routine on that about how I was never on acting out by the scene on Law and Order, what I would be, you know. Yeah, just the interactions you have in show business and how everybody's just, you know, in living in this, in their own world, you know? Yeah. Well, I feel like now it's, it's definitely ripe for coming back now. Cause there's so many, so much conversation about cop shows and what's, what you can do on cop shows and, and right. Black Lives Matter and all these things. And, and even, and even COVID and how they're, you know, uh, been watching 
some law and order, how they, they have masks, but they kind of like only wear them half the time. And then when they have something really important to say, they pull the mask down to say it. And there's <laughs> like just a lot of, it's a lot of good material there. So I, I would love to see a cop show that, take yeah. on some of that stuff. It, is, it would be it would be great, but it's cost a lot of money. I mean, even those little five minute segments. We had this guy Jay Diamato, who's like director producer. Do you know him? I know the name. What what else has he, he done? He worked with he's Chris been... Gathered on a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, I mean, he's amazing. But also, he did it so cheaply. Yeah, and it was still. But it looks great. Yeah. Yeah, it was still like I don't know how much an episode, but and he did it dirt cheap. You could not have done it cheaper than he did it. And it looked great. So we need, you know, you need money. I mean, you can't just do it, you know. But I, it is by, you're right in the sense that I'll never, I shouldn't say it because I'm working on other stuff. I'll never do anything that I personally think is funnier than cop show. What do we got? Female Caucasian, late 20s, looks to be possibly deceased. Looks like a real nice girl. Uh, apparently somebody didn't think so. Cut. Cut. Does that last line sound too mean? Let's maybe just uh, do a take where we lose the, the kick, kick the corpse. I don't feel like a cop would do that, right? On the next take, I think we should show the horror of murder by getting a close-up on the eyes. Yeah, 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 I like that, I like that a lot. Okay, guys, so we're gonna go uh, tight in on the victim's eyes. Oh, no, not the victim's eyes, close-up on my eyes. Yeah, it's really funny. What about acting? I mean, you have done a little more sort of not quite serious acting, but some other some more deeper parts in the past, you know, girls and uh, playing Amy Schumer's father in Trainwreck. Is that something that you want to pursue more of doing no, acting like that? Not no. at all. I love <laughs> cop show acting. Bad that acting. Kinda, I bad like acting. bad acting. Yeah, you're not trying to do good acting. No. You're very good in Trainwreck. Oh, thanks. But do you, how about the guy that plays my manager in Comp Show when he's going, there's a part, him <laughs> and the director, these are parts that have been beaten to death before these guys got there. They're the clip. And those two guys, whatever they're doing with those parts, and those are like the cliche part, the manager, the agent, these guys are so good. And remember, he's like, that's the best I've ever seen him walk. Like him talking to me and me acting right afterwards. Like that's the only kind of acting I want to do. <laughs> I get more pleasure out of being bad, but just off a bit than any mm -hmm. acting I could ever do. You know, it's just so much yeah. fun. <laughs> Before we go, I do want to uh, shout out your your book, your most most recent book too, uh, Overstated, oh, um, thanks, which yeah. is uh, which is great and has it sort of goes back to that thing we were talking about of uh, personifying uh, you know states yeah. and how they all have personalities and everything. So I'm curious, uh, you know, thinking about back to the uh, the election a couple months ago, was there a state or that kind of surprised you the most? Uh, since you're very familiar with all of these, uh, all of the states and how they're supposed to behave. Um, well, I mean, uh, I guess Georgia. I mean, you know, all those states, obviously, but nothing surprised me. You know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, <laughs> Trump is just exhausting. So nothing, nobody's reaction. The only reaction is surprising when people aren't like, oh no, this guy, it's enough. You know, <laughs> like even the most hardcore right-wing person would still be like, no, 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 come on. Yeah, this is, you know, yeah. this, this is too much. <laughs> yeah. It's too much. I think we're reaching that point uh, currently. Yeah, I finally. think so. But I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, look, this country, obviously, it's still ideologically divided. And I feel like it's two cults on the left and right and then a bunch of people in the middle that are trying to uh, be reasonable but don't really have a voice right now. Yeah. Do you have any predictions for America in 2021? What What might happen? No, because I'm terrible. I'm so bad at predictions, you know, that I when I, I, I used to bet on the Super Bowl every year. And I was like, oh, for 18 when I stopped. Yeah, that's <laughs> a bad the record. Bowl. 
I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> That's a good reason so, to stop. Yeah, but it's like it's a reason I'm not a gambler because I'm I just stink at predictions. My predictions never, very rarely come true. So this country, I mean, like, you know, like everybody else, I'm not I'm not hoping that it falls apart. You know, I'm kind of hoping that something, you know, that somehow there's just like everybody just changes, you know, their energy on on social media in particular, but in general, you know, where, you know, it's a country of scolding, you know, self-righteous idiots. I mean, it's just terrible. It's just unbelievable. I don't know if it'll change, but, but we could hope. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, maybe Trump beat it all out. Maybe people will just be like, you know, just lay down for a long nap. Maybe this will be the long nap era, you know? Yeah, that'd be and nice. Like after a lot of countries have a war, then they're just like, uh, yeah, I can't even, I don't even want to talk for the next few years, you know? Yeah, that would be good. But hopefully the civil war doesn't happen before that. Yeah, I know. I hope not. It's happening right now as we're talking. I know, I know. <laughs> and we got go, we to we gotta get off and start checking on the civil war. If it's war. not today, it's not happening. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, this will come out in a week and we'll be like, oh, wow, the civil war already happened. Yeah, those two idiots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> joking around. <laughs> so we end every episode of the podcast by asking comedians, who is a comedian in your life who just makes you laugh harder than anybody else? When you look back on, on the people that you've known, that you've worked with, that you've seen, who is the, who's someone who, who just really, really makes you laugh? I mean, there's so many comedians that make me laugh. Stand-up-wise, there's just, there's like 300 people. And when I see them on <laughs> yeah. stage, I just get excited. You can tell you're a real, you're a real comedy fan, you can tell. Yeah, I love, I mean, I love them. I love them. Because I feel like there's just so much, like, even when it gets like, like, I wish I could, my dream would be, I take each comedian, direct them myself, and like, uh, shape their act. And then we do the special in their hometown. I was, yeah, you know what I mean? That sounds great. Because I really feel like I know comedians and I know what they're not seeing in their own act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they'd have to listen to me. Comedians don't like to listen to anybody, even me. Yeah. You know? Do you feel like you've become a, a mentor for comedians? I mean, that's the role that you really play in the in the in the drive-in special. Is a, yeah, is, in a know. way. But I mean, but I'd like to be a real mentor and just say, let's put out your best special before we all drop dead. This is the essence of what I think is going on. And obviously, you know, we could. It's not like they have to listen to every word I say, but take it seriously like a show. And just so this is. Because a lot of people, like anybody, you never can see yourself. Yeah, well, I think this is. I think you should do this. This sounds great. Who would you start? Who would you start with? Who's the first person you want to shape? First thing I do is get the money and then spend it on a cop show. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, a little misdirect there. I would start with uh, well, Mark Norman because it was his podcast where I first said I'd like to do a special with you in your hometown. You know, like because I feel like where people are from means something. But now, but when you when you're saying like I'm really thinking like it's not just about their hometown. It's about really. Edit, shaping the act, you know what I mean? Like saying, you're missing so much right here. You can't see yourself, so other people can see it. But yeah, but they have to love, true. they have to love you and love stand up to do it. It can't be me trying to like say, here's who you better be. You know what I mean? It has to be like 
No, like this is something we want to do for the right reasons. You know? Well, I would love to see you do that, and I'll, I'll be looking forward to uh, whatever you whatever you do next, whether it's that or, or more cop show or your next special yeah. or, or anything. I'm so glad you put up cop show. You know, people don't really talk about it. I'm so glad you put it up because I love it too. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad you're feeling better, um, and this was a lot of fun. So, uh, so Same here. hopefully we can we can talk again sometime. And uh, yeah, can't wait to see it. you perform again when when the time comes. Thanks. It's great to finally do this. Wow, I cannot thank Colin Quinn enough for that incredible conversation. You can stream Colin Quinn and Friends, a parking lot comedy show on HBO Max right now. And if you haven't checked out Cop Show, you can find that on YouTube. If you're enjoying The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.